Paul Borden uh, shared some stories. I want to share them with you. He said, recently I heard from a man or heard of a man from Jordan, a Christian who came to the United States. He went through seminary. He even got his doctorate degree in theology. And he and his wife went back to Jordan to their homeland. As a result of the Gulf War and the aftermath of that war, for the first time, Jordanian after Jordanian after Jordanian is coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And this mission field that had been so barren is becoming a tremendous harvest. So much so that a month ago, this man and his wife came back to the States to recruit more people and more money to help them with this job. While they were here, his wife went to the doctor and found that her throat was filled with cancer. Now he's in the States trying to see what they can do to keep his wife alive. Meanwhile, there is no one over there to work with the Jordanians. He said, God, that's stupid. That is dumb. That doesn't make any sense. Paul goes on, he said, I heard of another man. A Christian man who about six months ago, months ago, uh, about six months before retirement, he was laid off. And the company finagled its, finagled its way so that he lost all of its benefits. He had been praying, God, I, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. I want to go to church. I'm going to serve you. Six months before retirement, with his security gone and everything taken away, now he prays, God, that's not fair. I don't know if Christianity is worth it. These two examples here, these two men, they, their, their belief was strained. Or maybe it even had been abandoned because they didn't think it was fair how they were being treated. In their minds, God should have intervened in their situation. He should have prevented these things from happening to them in the first place. To be quite honest, it's hard to be too critical with these men. It's hard. It's hard to be too critical. Because we have all stood where they were standing at some point or another in our life. After all, we've all tried to do for the Lord, and then, and then wonder, why, God, have you taken my health from me? Why, why, God, after I did so much, did you split the church? Why, God, were my efforts and my energies met with failure and opposition? On a very personal note, after my dad died, doing so much for the kingdom, why, why, God? Why did you call him home so soon? So I want you to understand, unbelief is not just the plight of the atheist or the agnostic. It can also make its way into the church. And sometimes it, it paralyzes us. Sometimes it keeps us from acting and doing what God wants us to do. Other times it can scare us into the wrong direction. So not only are, aren't we doing what God wants, but we're doing what he would not want us to do. Unbelief can cause us to ignore the truth that is right in front of us. It, it causes us to rationalize away why that truth 
could be true in our lives. Why it really wasn't the truth at all. In fact, I heard a story about what happened to Lord Kenneth Clark, one of the great, uh, one of Great Britain's most prominent art historians and, and authors, and the, and the producer of the BBC television series Civilization. In an autobiographical account, Clark writes that when he was living in a villa in France, he had a curious episode. I had a religious experience. It took place in the church of San Lorenzo, but did not seem to be connected with the harmonious beauty of the architecture. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being was radiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I had ever experienced before. This state of mind lasted for several minutes, but as wonderful as it was, it posed an awkward problem in terms of action. My life was far from blameless. I would have to reform. My family would think I was going mad, and perhaps, after all, it was a delusion. For I was in every way unworthy of such a flood of grace. Gradually the effect wore off, and I made no effort to retain it. I think I was right. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. But I had felt the finger of God quiet and sure. Although the memory of this experience has faded, it still helps me to understand the joys of the saints. Like it or not, we all struggle. We all struggle with unbelief sometimes. We all wonder why. We all call out to God, this shouldn't be happening to be, to me. We wrestle with the whys and the hows and the winds. We wonder if this is really what God wants. Is this really who He wants me to be? Is this really what He wants me to do and where He wants me to go? I think we would all admit that there is a great power in unbelief. In fact, the truth is, unbelief has the power to blind us from a clear view of who Jesus is. In fact, as we head to Mark 6, which is where we're going to be this morning, there are three different acts of unbelief recorded in Mark 6. And I want to look at through these three different acts of unbelief because in the midst of them, we see responses from those involved. And in those responses, maybe we will see ourselves. But I want to inform you in advance that even if you see yourselves in the midst of that unbelief, you don't have to stay in the midst of that unbelief. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Jesus left that part of the country and returned to his disciples, to, uh, turned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and, and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. 
Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Now I want you to understand what's going on here. These people are involved in, in unbelief and the unbelief they have goes something like this. Well, he can't be because we remember when. He, he can't be what he claimed because we remember when. He can't be Messiah because we remember when. He can't be Son of God because we remember when. I find this passage so interesting. Jesus has done miracles all over the place. In his hometown, the people there must have seen them, at least some of them, because they're amazed and they talk about it. In fact, not only do they talk about his miracles, but they talk about his teaching and how powerful it is. Yet, because they know his family, because they remember him as a child, they can't see past that. All they can see in him is a carpenter. They can't see his real family connection with Abba Father, Almighty God. They're so convinced. Hey, remember when Jesus did this or did that? Remember when he was a little kid and he fell off that, you know, that, that rock and scuffed his knee? Remember this about him? Remember how he were, used to work with his father in that carpentry shop? He, he surely can't be Messiah. He surely can't be Lord. I think this is an easy place to find ourselves. It's easy to look at the past, remembering what God has done and allowing the memory of what God has done to limit and restrict what God can do. We look backwards and we think, well, look what God did back then. But then for some reason, we use that as a gauge by which what, what God can do now. We, we don't allow him to go beyond that. We don't allow him to do more than that. He did it then. That's all he can do now. There's nothing more he can be involved in in that aspect. Cary Grant once told how he was walking along a street and he met a fellow whose eyes locked onto him. With excitement, the man said, wait a minute, you're, uh, you're, I know who you are, uh, don't tell me, uh, you're Rock Hud, no, no, your Grant thought, I'll, I'll help him out. So he finished the man's sentence. He said, well, I'm, I'm Cary Grant. And the fellow said, no, no, that's not it. You're, uh, and he goes on, and he said, there was Cary Grant identifying himself with his own name, but the fellow had someone else in mind. In John chapter 1, verse 10, talking about Jesus, it says, He came into the very world He created, but the world didn't recognize Him. They didn't recognize Him. They, they didn't realize who He was. They, they couldn't, in this instance, they couldn't see past their past previous experiences. They locked Jesus into a mold and they would not allow their minds to change. Have we ever done the same thing? Jesus, you surely can't be calling us to do this or that. You've never called us to do that before. You surely can't be asking us to do this or that. You've never asked us to do that before. 
You surely can't want me to go out and talk to my neighbor about your son or about you. You've never asked me to do that before, and yet he has. We've just never done it before. There's a huge difference. He has, but we haven't done it before. Because they only saw a carpenter. Maybe we only see a Savior, not, not Lord. But these events go on. Jumping down to verse 35 through 44, you'll be very familiar with this. 35 through 44, late in the afternoon his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, you feed them. With what? They asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. Well, how much bread do you have? He asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. Now, I love this story. We're going to look at one more verse here in just a second. But I love this story. Jesus is there. He says, hey, we got, some, we got five loaves of, of bread and some fish. And so he prays. He blesses it. And then it says that he keeps giving it to his disciples so they can give it to others. Now, I don't know about you, but in my mind, I'm picturing the disciples here with their arms out and they're filled up with loaf after loaf after loaf of bread that Jesus keeps handing them out of these five loaves that turn into hundreds and hundreds of loaves of bread, maybe thousands of loaves of bread. And then in John 6, talking about this exact same event Afterwards, they run and they find Jesus. And in John 6, verse 26, this is what Jesus says. They've run. After they were fed, they run. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. We get to the second group, and it's a huge group. It's this large group. They also have a problem with belief. They also are dealing with unbelief because in their minds, Jesus needs to be what I want now. That's what they're thinking. I want Jesus to be what I want Jesus to be right now. This crowd of possibly 15,000 have witnessed the mirac this miraculous feeding. They've been fed physically and Jesus also has been feeding them spiritually but apparently the teaching of Jesus didn't have that great of an impact on them because the free food was what really caught their attention. Free food is what really caught their attention. They've been looking for someone like Jesus who will be their nanny, who will take care of their every single need. In fact, 
In John 6, it reminds us that they were thinking about the wilderness when manna from heaven came down, and that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a God who's just going to feed them and feed them and feed them and care for them and take care of them and provide for them without them having to do anything. He needs to be what I want him to be right now. That's what I'm looking for. Speaker Mike Benson tells how one night, as his family was finishing dinner, his eight-year-old daughter left six green beans on her plate. Now, she normally ate all of her vegetables, and Mike did not usually allow this sort of thing to bother him, but for some reason that night, it irked him, and he said, you need to eat your green beans. She replied, Dad, I'm full to the top. Well, you won't pop, he responded. Yes, I will pop, she said. Well, he said, risk it. It'll be okay. Dad, I, I could not eat another bite, she said. Mike knew that that night they were having her favorite dessert, pumpkin pie squares. So he asked, well, well how would you like a double helping of pumpkin pie squares with two dollops of whipped cream on top? That sounds great, she responded as she pushed her plate back, ready for her dessert. Why well, can you have room? for a double helping of pumpkin pie squares with two dollops of whipped cream and not have room for six measly green beans. She stood up tall on her chair and pointed to her belly. This is my vegetable stomach. This is my meat stomach, and they are both full. But here's my dessert stomach, and it is empty, and I am ready for dessert. So I want you to understand that what we eat reveals what we are hungry for. What we eat reveals what we're, what we're hungry for. Philippians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life here on earth. I don't know about you, but, but it's so easy to get fixated on the here and the now and forget about what we are looking forward to. It's so easy to get caught up and locked into the here and now and the emergencies and the needs and the issues and fail to look beyond all of that. Natalie Grant sings a song. It's called More Than Anything. I'm sure you've heard it on the radio if you listen to uh, contemporary Christian music. But the chorus goes like this. Help me want the healer more than the healing. Help me want the savior more than the saving. Help me want the giver more than the giving. Oh, help me want you, Jesus, more than anything. What are you focused on? Where's your energy spent? Are you focused on those things that are going to last for an eternity? Are you spending energy on those things that are going to last forever and ever and ever? Or are you focused on the here and now? On your own worldly appetites? On what would make it easy for you? Rather than what would be most effective for the kingdom? Are you looking at Jesus and you're saying, Boy, I really want a nanny. I really want a nanny instead of a Lord. Instead of a Lord. Now, there's one more text. 
47 through 52, we already had a little bit of a glimpse into this text, actually. Late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on water. He intended to go past them. But when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. They were totally amazed for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Unbelief. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Unbelief. Unbelief. He must be what I think he should be, is what the disciples are thinking to themselves. Again, I'm amazed at the disciples. They have seen all sorts of miracles Jesus has done. In fact, Jesus sent them out earlier in this chapter, two by two, and empowered them to do miracles. And they did them. They did miracles. But now, when Jesus walks out in the water to them, their hearts are are hard. Why, why couldn't they see the truth about who Jesus was? Why didn't they understand the significance of, of the miracle, of the feeding of the 5,000 plus family? To me at least, it appears that they're still in the midst of a real struggle. And the struggle is they have a preconceived idea of who Jesus should be. And in their mind, Jesus should be a conqueror, they want Jesus to overthrow Rome, to set up an earthly kingdom, to rule the nations with an iron fist and allow them to be there by his side. But Jesus didn't come to establish that kind of kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that is built and found in the hearts of people. That's why Jesus came. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, this is what it says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied or answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn it from any human being. This is the true identity of Jesus. This is a true identity, and the disciples finally get to the point where they recognize it partially, because even after this, they still struggle with his identity. They still do not understand who Jesus really is is. See, it's easy sometimes for us to see Jesus as Savior. It's easy for us to see Jesus as Lord. But what about seeing Jesus as almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God? Do we see him like that? Because that is who he is. That is who we serve. Linda Dupree said, 
As the only English teacher in a small rural school, I had the mixed pleasure of teaching my own three sons. They begged me not to call on them in class or use them as examples or tell any family stories to which I agreed. On the first day of class, they each invariably would choose a seat in the far corner and refuse to even make eye contact. I left them alone. But making it to high school English class was a rite of passage for the rest of the students who were eager to participate in Mrs. Dupree's class. I watched as my children began to see me through the eyes of others. One day my oldest asked me in puzzlement, Mama, do they know who you are? I'm sure he was referring to the fact that I was just a mother, to which I responded, Son, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I wonder if God isn't looking down at us and saying, Do you know who I am? Because you sure don't act like it. You're sure not acting like it. You keep falling into unbelief over and over and over again. I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer. I'm all-knowing. I'm all-powerful. That's who I am. Do you know who I am? What do we do when we're caught in the struggle of unbelief? What do we do if we have confined Jesus to a definition that we ourselves have come up with? What do we do when we have decided that Jesus can only be this big in our lives? I think we have to proclaim what the father of the demon-possessed son proclaimed when he was struggling with unbelief. You remember, it's after the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus and the three disciples who were with him come down off the mountain, and when they get down there, there's this argument going on because the other disciples were unable to help this man's child. And if you remember, the man says, If you can do anything, Jesus, for my son, won't you? And then part picking up on that, Mark chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, it says, What do you mean, if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. That's how we need to approach Jesus. If we're struggling with unbelief, we need to say, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Help me get past my past view of you. Help me get past my present needs. Help me get past my expectations of who you should be and let me recognize you as God, almighty God, all-powerful God, who is beyond any definition that the world could possibly give. Help me get to that place. We pray with me? And then, Father, I thank you for this passage, this text this chapter which challenged me all week as I worked on this sermon. And Lord, it is my prayer that maybe in the least of ways that someone's eyes have been opened to the, the majesty of who you are and who your son is. In a small way that we will open up our hearts to the realization that you are all powerful, all mighty, all knowing that you can do whatever needs to be done in our lives, through our lives. 
Lord, I pray that those places of unbelief that we continue to feed, I pray, Lord, that we will start to allow them to starve out and we will cry out to you, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Help me get past these places of doubt and fear. Lord, I pray that as we walk this life together as a body, but also as individuals in a world that may not like what we have to proclaim, I pray that we will realize how powerful and mighty that you are and that that will provide us a strength and a a security and a boldness to share who you are. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.